Uh, hello, welcome to the Aftershock Central podcast. We uh, we've been around, uh, even though we haven't recorded. Travis, hello. Who's this? Uh, new phone. Who this? New phone. <laughs> we got it. Episode title. Perfect. <laughs> new phone. Who this? Uh, welcome to the show. It's been <laughs> we checked. We couldn't believe it. Three months since we recorded. I can't believe that. Yeah, we're moving to a quarterly schedule. Uh... <laughs> yes, we're only going to do episodes when uh, when OGNs come out. Yeah, and so each once, episode once will be three hours long. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it could be like uh, like Geek Brunch, right? Their their last episode is four and a half hours. I hear the new one is over six hours. Yeah, so over six that. hours for the new episode. Uh, I mean, I love you, Travis, but uh, six hours. Yikes. Yeah, That's a lot. I, you know, like you got to put something on when you're uh, bagging and boarding hundreds <laughs> of comics. <laughs> doing your Christmas wrapping, you know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. See, that's why we can't do six-hour episodes, because uh, we read digital comics. So there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we're not going to uh, be crazy and, and discuss <laughs> the past three months' worth of comics, uh, because that would definitely be a six-hour podcast. We're just going to talk about last week's books. And uh, and I, I happened to uh, guilt Travis into reading Kill a Man, the brand-new original graphic novel from uh, Steve Orlando, Phil Kennedy Johnson, Al Morgan, Jim Campbell, and... Uh, you know, I was uh, I was hanging out at home today, Travis. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and read it just to see what's up because I like Steve Orlando. And then I guilted you into reading it because you uh, said, I, well, if you read it, then I have to read it. I'm not. I wouldn't say that you guilted me into reading it. See, here's the thing. It's it's like 130 pages, right? Was it? Yeah. It, Dang. It, pretty much. Okay. And. And that was just like, you know, we were talking about getting this episode together and I was like, you know, I don't I just don't know if I'm going to be able to to read a 130 page graphic yeah, novel yeah, on yeah, top yeah. Of, of doing everything else. Uh, but then you, you know, you said you had read it and wanted to talk about it. So I was like, OK, well, I'll see what I can get through. And it went very fast, very fast. Yeah, I didn't, I, I'm looking at it now. It's 136 pages. It did not feel like that at all. Yeah. And I mean, I think you could attribute that to a couple things, you know, um, yes. like as we were talking about, you know, you know, there definitely there's a couple fights in here. And, you know, like those take up, you know, a, a good amount of page real estate without a lot of text. So so those sequences read very fast. And otherwise, I would also say a lot of it kind of kind of has. For, for lack of a better descriptor, I would say it's like a cinematic quality to yeah. to the text and dialogue so that it's like it's not just, you know, reams and reams of text. You know, it, it all it, it, it you know, it's like reading a screenplay, you know, so for sure, it actually yeah. goes pretty quick. Yeah, it was. I was surprised. Uh, you know, you, you you're talking about the 136 pages. I th I mean, I read it. I, I felt it was like, uh, you know, like a 48 page oversized special. But I guess it makes more sense as an original graphic novel that it would be much, much bigger. So, uh, yeah, really interesting. And, uh, you know, like I told you when, when we were chatting earlier, this is really not the kind of book that I uh, usually enjoy. Um, you know, I like uh, – obviously I love superhero comics, but but I love sci-fi and I love fantasy. I love horror. 
and when you have the uh, slice of life style comics, I uh, I generally tend to stay away from that. Aside from Terry Moore, I love Terry Moore stuff. And mm. uh, and so when I began to read, because you know, Kill a Man sounds like this might be a maybe a high story or like uh, an assassination plot or something like that, and it's not that at all. It's uh, it's a story about a I mean, I guess a, a multi-generational story about a, a fighter, a UFC fighter, or EFC, I guess, in, in the book. And, you know, him trying to get to the top. Uh, his dad was also a fighter, and he was killed in a fight. And so he, he feels like he's got something to prove. And as he he's climbing up the ladder at the EFC, he's offered a title match. And then the guy that he's going to fight outs him as gay. And, of course, that leads into basically the, the central part of the story of how this guy deals with being outed, how he himself deals with his sexuality, because it seems like at least publicly he's denied that very much. And and you can argue like even privately he denies being gay, right? Uh, the way he treats uh, the lover that we meet in this particular issue or in this uh, graphic novel, he he's kind of like on a I don't know what the the gay equivalent of Tinder is, uh, but he's on that under a, a presumed name, and uh, he just you know he's in it for the sex, and uh, and I like the way the story develops as a result of him being outed and and what that entails. So it ends up being kind of like a a Rocky style story, right, where he sure. has to overcome some loss and and regain his his pride and learn to accept who he is and uh and i really actually enjoyed it quite a bit i love the artwork it's uh it's very dark and there's a lot of very strong color choices in uh in some of the fighting scenes and the training scenes right a lot of blues and reds and uh, and that makes sense to to fit in with the theme of the story but uh but i thought it was actually really really fantastic i was extremely presently surprised because again this is not the kind of book that i would gravitate towards usually yeah so i mean by that you mean specifically that it you know it's grounded right and it's not like escapist really correct yes 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 yeah i'm not a big fan of the the hyper realist stuff yeah um yeah no i mean it's yeah like i i think I, I'm I'm the same page. Like I I'm much more about escapist if I'm if I'm curling up and trying to read something, you know. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I thought this was very interesting, you know. Like and obviously it reads as very personal to Steve Orlando, mm-hmm. you know, who uh, I'm sure you know is by and you yes. know his his partner of however many years, you know, is a man. Yes. Um. I don't know where the UFC thing comes in, you know, if 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 that is personal to him in some fashion, if he's a UFC fan or whether that was just a I, I don't know, a convenient thing to, to latch on to. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's kind of central to the the narrative. Um, well, it, it does work well as a plot device, right, because the UFC is like uber macho. Uh, an uber macho sport. Um, yes. And so, and, th- and that plays into the story, right? Because once he's outed as gay, the the guy that's running the EFC is like setting him up basically to um, first not get a title match 
and then to lose the match regardless, right? So he's got the refs in the in his pocket, and you know the training partner for the champ and all this stuff, uh, because he doesn't he doesn't feel like uh, people that watch and follow the sport would be okay with a gay man being the champion. And, and obviously you know, I, that ends up not being the case at the end. Well, I mean, it, you know, we, we can get into that. I, I will say uh, that um, I don't know that, that they're wrong. You know, I don't, I don't know that that, that that character in saying that is wrong. You know, like, obviously, you know, some time has passed, but you've seen Borat, yes? Uh, I have not yet, but I, I've heard plenty. You've, you've not seen the original Borat? Oh, I've seen the original. I thought you meant the new one. No, I'm talking about like remember remember the original Borat when they're doing the MMA fight yes. and the two fighters kiss and yes. there's like a riot. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I don't think that that it's changed all that much since then. You know, I think it like you're right. And you know, I like I I don't really claim to know a lot about uh, the UFC MMA sport, so like I don't want to to judge it out of hand, but like it does definitely seem to be as you said a hyper macho you know, thing, um, yes. you know, and I, yeah, like I'll, I'll leave it at, at that. Well, um, no, and, and, and just to put in, I, I don't follow the sport now. I used to, um, but, uh, but you know, I, I do hear things every now and then about what's going on at the UFC. And, and I do know that the character that runs the league in, in this book, uh, does seem to be very similar from my understanding of the person to Dana White, who runs the UFC. Right. Mm. Who's very uh, kind of we'll, we'll just say chauvinistic. Yeah. And I mean, like, like I don't want to I don't want to feel like I'm taking cheap shots or picking on on something. So, like, like let, let me just open it up a little bit, which is to say that, like, I don't really know that any male professional sport really is, is like is, quote, ready for it. You, you know, mm. like. You know, I I feel like it's you know it's over a decade since like the first openly gay like basketball player in the NBA happened, and that guy like right. like basically I, I don't even know if he lasted a season before like he got cut. Mm-hmm. So I just like I'm sure that that we would probably would come to find out that you know there's been a lot of like closeted gay players in in various sports and leagues over the years. But, um, you know, I, I'm not sure I really I really feel confident that Joe sports fan out there is, is totally ready for it. You know, I, I agree. I agree. It's unfortunate. Yes. But, but that, you know, that's where we are. So I like I don't want to I don't want to put this all on on UFC. I, I think that like this could could be a story that exists in other sports. For sure, and and this is not exactly the the same kind of deal, so don't don't take it the wrong way. Uh, but I, I recently watched, well, recently it's been a few months, uh, a documentary called Game Changers, uh, and it's about uh, like professional athletes who are vegan, mm. and and the stigma behind being a vegan. Like, how could you be a you know a linebacker if all you eat is lettuce, right? And uh, and so again, not the same kind of thing, but a similar stigma, right? Where you you feel like to be involved in the sport, where the point is basically it's it's like a reenactment of war, right? Like you're beating each other up, and your team has to succeed. Um, and and there's certain connotations 
that arise out of that particular mindset that kind of leads to people having this more macho attitude. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of talk right now, for example, about uh, transgender athletes competing in certain sports, right? So would it be fair for a man who undergoes a sex change, say, and become a woman to participate in female sports? Because even though they've crossed over into becoming a woman and, and identify as a woman, they're still uh, physique-wise, right, in terms of their bone structure and musculature, uh, have certain advantages over female athletes. And and how does that play out, right? Uh, so there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that you're right. I don't think as a society we really have the correct tools to kind of navigate through, right? In terms of like ideology, it's it's a little bit simpler than it is when it comes to practice. And I'm not saying that it should be different. I'm just saying that's the reality of things. And and I think the book does a really great job at portraying that. Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, I I like to think that. I don't know, at least let's say half of sports fans or, you know, like could deal with with the, you know, a, a player being gay, you know, like I I'm not I'm not sure why they couldn't like I I, I more understand like uh, kind of whatever the, the resistance or or discomfort that you may get from the other athletes. You know, be, like because like they like you know come from such a you know like testosterone driven you know like macho like environment you know yeah yeah right like I I don't know I'm not I'm not trying to you know no I get what you mean of... and and that shows up in the book right when he before he gets a title match he's put in to fight this other random guy. Uh, kind of put into this fight to lose, right? Because the guy's a really good ga- grappler and the and the main character's not a grappler, right? He's he's a striker. And and right before they start the match, the, the ref is like, you know, bump uh, gloves or whatever, and they bump gloves, and the guy's like, don't try any gay shit. Uh, so, like, there there is that, right? Like, even if he didn't mean that, like, necessarily in a homophobic or, or irrational manner, uh, there is still that attitude, yeah, for sure. I mean, and like, it's, it's a huge part of this book, you know, it's like, that's, that's why the the dude gets killed in the first fight, you know, is, is because he said some homophobic shit. And, you know, the, the other fighter snapped. Right, yeah, I like, mean, I guess nope. we're, we kind of buried the lead. So the, the main character's dad gets killed in this fight. And the guy that he's fighting is, uh, he's not publicly gay, right? Uh, there's like rumors of him being gay, but he's not publicly gay, and and he's outed as gay as a result of him basically killing this guy in the fight, and and ends up leaving the the fight scene, and because our main character's outed, nobody wants to work with him. He's kicked out of his team. He's got no trainer, no sparring partner, or nothing, and so he does the only thing he knows to do, and he goes to seek this guy's help to train him. Because, well, partially he he's like the only one that will, right? Because he's the only openly gay uh, athlete in the sport. Yeah, I mean, and the, and that's like that's all what was a pretty compelling scene him showing up there, right? Yeah. And and you know, it's kind of your, you know, it's it's the 
older fighters chance for you know whatever we want to say redemption or healing yeah, sure. or yeah. you, you know like like he he had to leave the sport because he was too traumatized by having bludgeoned a guy to death you know mm-hmm. and um you know you you see narratively uh you know the the fruits that that bears because like the you know the end is that the dude is you know the the champ uh who also has been saying homophobic stuff and and who outs the the protagonist um you know he's unconscious right and and like the you know dude is about to to you know punch him into a grave and he doesn't mm-hmm um, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, that's what you see there is a kind of like, you know, the, the thing comes full circle and, and now it's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that because that would ruin my life. And to, to your earlier point, you know, about like, is the crowd, you know, ready for the champion? You know, it's, it's like, unfortunately he's not the champ. Maybe he gets a rematch someday, but like ostensibly he loses. But everybody else that's in the arena sees that the dude was clearly like unconscious and should have lost. Right. Um, so maybe it's just that like, you know, their their love of sportsmanship or, you know, a good fight like supersedes their kind of uncomfortableness with uh you know, uh lgbt stuff but sure um well and that's the thing too right like you always want to see a good fight like yes you have this angle of uh, of this central character that's gay but you know especially in a title match and again i haven't watched contact sports in in many years but i remember like as a kid my dad used to get the the boxing pay-per-views right Mm -hmm. and like there's a lot of disappointment sometimes in these matches because you you know you pay like 30 40 bucks to watch a match and it's like useless, right? You have like a, a two minute knockout, right? With like a Tyson fight. The guy Tyson knocks everybody out in, in a minute, minute and a half. So like that's not fun to watch, right? And and the fight that we see here, now granted, it's it's good for the atmosphere of the book, right? It it pushes along the narrative. Um, but that's like what you want to see when you watch contact sports is this this idea of like two opposing parties trying to outwit each other through beating the crap out of each other. And and if you don't have that, then it's not a fun fight, regardless of sexual orientation or anything. And so by the fact that, like, not only did he, like, technically really did beat the champ, right? Even though he lost the match because the, the refs and everybody was in, in the, the EFC's pocket. Uh, but, but the fans realized that he won because, like, he got knocked down, he kept on fighting, he he was going out of his comfort zone in terms of his his technique, right? He he's always known as, as a fighter and a flashy fighter, um, but he really used some of his weaknesses in in the grappling, for example, as a strength to overcome it and, and outsmart his opponent. And that's really what you want to see in a fight. And and I think that yes, even if people that were following the fight weren't like too keen on seeing this gay guy be in the title match and potentially be champion, they realized that he, he, regardless of all of that, he's got the skills to do it. And I thought that was kind of important because it was a, it was a teaching lesson for him, right? That he was able to prove to himself that none of the stuff really matters. 
Um, and then, you know, to tie it all back, he was able to reunite with that like one night stand that he met on Tinder and uh, and po- seems possibly to be able to form a relationship now. FYI, the the app on, in this comic is called Cruiser. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Which I yes. like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let me ask you this. Um, wait, you know, am I crazy? I feel like I got kind of a Rocky Four vibe from like seeing the way the fight played out. One hundred percent. That he's like kind of converting people in real time and by the end they're all chanting his name you know yeah like... i you know as, as i was reading it and when he went to find this guy to train him i fully expected a scene like in philly like with him running up the stairs and yelling adrian you know um which wasn't there but that's fine but yeah you're right there's there's a lot of that and and i do wonder i'm sure that steve orlando follows contact sports um there was a book that he did a couple years ago. I think it was Crude. Wasn't the the main character in that uh, a boxer and or at least an ex boxer maybe? Um, so I'm I'm sure he follows Contact Sports uh, for him well, to, I mean, also, to put this he, in again. He loves Russian culture and uh, for sure, Ivan yeah. Drago, you know. Yep, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I think he was a Russian history major, if I'm not mistaken. Classic Soviet historical figure Ivan Drago. Yes, who's not Soviet? I mean, I don't know. Maybe he is. But I just watched uh, The Expendables, and he's Swedish in that movie. I'm pretty sure he's Swedish in real life. Oh, no, Dolph is Swedish. For yes, sure. Dolph yeah. is Swedish, yeah. Uh, but yes, Drago, you're right. The uh, eponymous, stereotypical Russian character. <laughs> I will break you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Dude, he was so funny in The Expendables. Anyway. Uh, not so much in the first one, I guess. He-Man, dude. Oh, he was He-Man. You're right. You are correct. Uh, anyways, I, I didn't expect for us to uh, talk so much about this book because uh, you hadn't read it, but I'm glad that you did. Uh, I'm curious if you wanted to score it, yeah, where would you it. place it in our hierarchy of scores? I'll go four out of five. Yeah? I thought it was pretty well done, yeah. Yeah, I loved it, actually. I, I agree. I'll, I'll go four out of five. Uh, I I would even go as far as to say this might be, and again, I might be biased because this is not really a genre that I generally follow, uh, but I, I might even say this might be one of my favorite things Steve Orlando has done in, in several years. Nice. Yeah, it's very good. Very, very good. And great art. Great art. Yes, agreed. I love that uh, that dark style. All right, cool. Awesome. Uh, let's uh, let's move on. Let's let's do something a little more fun. How about that? Nah, nah, I don't, I don't know. No. Do anything else? <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, sorry. I my I, I I'm at imp- I I'm not uh, in practice for improv. Yes, and I <laughs> look forward to to doing something fun. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much fun it is. There's there's a lot of people getting shot and uh, crossed. Uh, but let's talk about Kaiju score, uh, number one, uh, from James Patrick and Rem Brew. I'm not familiar with Rem, but uh, enjoyed the art here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems a little, maybe a little more uh, stereotypical uh, Aftershock style art, if, if there is such a thing. Uh, there really isn't, to be honest, but... It feels like something I'm I'm a little more used to from from Aftershock. It does and, look uh, familiar. Yeah, it does, right? 
I, yeah, like I couldn't tell you who specifically, you know? Yeah, I couldn't tell either. Uh, I mean, in some ways, like it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Hawaiian Dick. Who, who did the art for Hawaiian Dick? Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. But uh, yeah, cool, uh, cool art. Much more colorful and vibrant. But uh, maybe not, uh, not a, definitely not a funny book. I, I thought it, it might be. I have this, uh, you know, I got to tell you, Travis, I might be biased. Because every time a book has the word kaiju in the title, I always assume that it's going to be kind of like a fun thing. Even though, uh, even though like Godzilla and stuff is not like a fun thing. Uh, what's the other one that's with kaiju that's super like dour? Um, Monsters? I don't know if you've ever seen those movies, but hmm. um, yeah, I uh, I enjoyed this quite a bit. You wanna you wanna tell me a little bit about Kaiju Score? Sure. I mean, dude, you don't love Kaiju? Everybody loves Kaiju. I do love Kaiju, and and the animated Godzilla movies on Netflix are awesome. Yeah. No. I mean, Kaiju are great, dude. Pacific Rim and uh, you know Godzilla. Sure. And, I don't know. Jurassic Park, <laughs> Gamera, and Mothra. Yeah, it's fun. Um, For sure. Okay, so I mean, like, yeah, the, like this is a kaiju story, but really, it's a heist story, right? Yes. Like, kaiju is is kind of like in the background, you know. Um, and I, before I start out, I have to ask you uh, if you've seen uh, the episode of Rick and Morty. I want to say it was the most recent season where they're talking about heist movies. Nope. Oof. Okay. Well, you should <laughs> you should go look for it because like it's definitely made me very salty about j- just like all of the the tropes and conventions for for heist movies. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Like, and and that's that's kind of informing how how I think that this whole thing is gonna unfold you know, is like somewhere around the middle. And then again, towards the end, there's going to be some kind of twist. Sure. You know, but I, I don't like that's, that's neither here nor there. Uh, we're, we're talking about what it's about, really. Like we're talking about a kind of heist planner is young dude. And, uh, you know, he's a screw up. Um, you know, he's, he's failed three times in a row. Um, because invariably he forgets or overlooks one minor detail and, <laughs> yeah. and everything spins out and, and the heists, uh, you know, he either loses what he was like trying to, to take away or, um, you know, like his crew gets captured, you know, so like that's his deal. And this is like his, his last chance, you know, it's like beyond his last chance. Mm. Uh, because he, he is trying to sell it and they're like, this is the stupidest idea ever. And it's kind of like, you're like Mr. Sloppy, like I, Hey, I overlook small, but crucial details. And you're selling a heist that has dozens of like kind of fail points or, you know, it's like this thing goes wrong and the whole thing is over. Yeah, and and not only that, like it's basically being bankrolled by like the loan shark of loan sharks. Uh, so if he fails, like not only will it go bad during the thing, but if he manages to somehow survive the heist, 
uh, and it fails, he's going to get severely um, hurt, we'll say. Well, not just him, but everybody that's, yeah, that's right. in the crew, too, you yes. know? And, like, by and large, they're all losers, uh, except for Blondie, who, you know, like, I don't know if you want to get into that now, you know? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, yeah. You know, like, a, a pretty a pretty significant thing right at the beginning of this issue is that, you know, you see this blonde character, and, I like, you can tell as the story unfolds that she is, like, an elite safecracker. Yes. Um, but she basically gets killed uh in between like like basically before she can turn down the gig right. she gets murdered and somebody is assuming her identity to get into this you know heist um and then you see that character later on in the issue and she can't even crack the the safe that that she's supposed to be cracking um so she's obviously working for somebody yeah, she's being blackmailed uh, into joining the operation, right? And and I yeah. wouldn't be surprised if it's the same loan shark that's bankrolling the operation. Yeah, but I'm, you know, that would seem strange, you know, in that, you know, why would you switch out, you know, like he's already got somebody that's that's going to be there to watch everything, you know? He's sending mm-hmm. his like number 2 guy and he's just there, you know, for when shit goes down. Right. Uh, so I don't I don't know that he would also have an interest in sabotaging, you, you know, like a crucial actual like member of the team. I figure that's somebody else. Your guess is as good as mine. Sure. You know, whether it's like the authorities, probably not, because like, I don't, I don't know, they seem to be aware that like that you know this person is murdering people in the service of infiltrating this heist Mm -hmm. um so i yeah i guess i guess i just you know there's not enough to go on at this point as for what's going on there um beyond the obvious which is that i you know it seems very likely it's going to get to her part of the thing and be like i can't open this right 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 and and we should and, say too that I mean we should explain the kaiju angle right because I mean it is called kaiju score sure uh, okay so you so take that? Uh, yeah I mean I, I just it would be super quick um, this is basically a world in which kaiju exist uh, and they're not um, they're not harmful to humans I mean like they've been known to eat a few people here and there sure uh, but it's more like uh, you know they treat it like uh, like a hurricane. We're like, oh, it looks like the kaiju's moving and may make a landfall. Like, here's your weather report on what may happen with the kaiju. And, uh, you know, the kaiju are just kind of living their lives. And these people have somehow acclimated to the fact that kaiju are a part of existence. And, uh, you know, when the kaiju's going to make landfall, they go to, like, the kaiju evacuation center. And uh, the kaiju, like, comes on land and, like, sunbathes a little bit and then goes back into the water. Um so so that's basically like the setup of this world. And and they have no interest in people either, right? Like there's a scene that I really liked actually, uh, because this guy's such a doofus, where he's up on the on the rooftop and he's like taking selfies with the kaiju walking behind them. Um so yeah, that's that's the setup in terms of the kaiju. Uh but what they want to do is use one of these kaiju landfalls as like a cover for their heist. Yeah, because they're 
they're saying that that you know the protocol is if if there's a kaiju incident that the museum that they're going to hit you know drops the the valuable stuff into a safe mm-hmm. and and evacuates everybody else right um but also just just to tweak like you know not necessarily every kaiju operates the same and the one that he's predicting that shows up that does is is like not the type that just knocks shit down for no reason but but it is just kind of there to sunbathe to your point yes like so if it was a a different kaiju it, it might not have played out that way and you know i wonder if another kaiju is not necessarily going to show up before the story is done to complicate the plans. Yes. Mothra will show up. Yes. For sure. Uh, I, uh, yeah, it, it's a good setup. And again, it's a number one issue. So there's a lot of setup. Um, I think out of, out of all the books that we are discussing tonight, this might be the one with the least action, uh, but it does have quite a bit of intrigue. So it's, it's quite a fun book to read. Um, you know, I, as I was reading it, it reminded me of something, and I feel like I've seen a movie or maybe read another comic that had a similar premise, where like there's a heist going on and a kaiju attack at the same time. But I could have just been dreaming that. It's very possible. I have crazy <laughs> dreams. Who knows? Uh, but I feel like this may have been a thing. And and so I looked it up, and we actually talked about this book previously. Uh, because they announced in August that th- that Sony optioned this for film. Oh, nice. Yeah, so potentially uh, at some point in the future when films are being made, uh, we'll see this turn into a film. I mean, yeah, it's like, it's pretty cool, right? Like in terms of, you know, I, I like kind of genre mixing, right? Yeah. And And so clearly here you've got a heist movie and you've got a kaiju movie. And maybe it's closer to one than the other. Uh, but, you know, sometimes w- when you're doing that kind of stuff, you know, y- you can end up with something interesting. Yes, I agree. What else would you like to say on this one? Or should we wrap this one up? Uh, okay. Um, two thoughts, okay? Yeah. One, did you see Flounder and Sebastian uh, <laughs> in this in this issue? No, I missed that. There's... There, there is some underwater shot that has <laughs> a a yellow and blue fish and a red crab, <laughs> and I don't think that's an accident. So, so there's an Easter egg for you. Hilarious. Uh, yeah, and um, I also was interested. Um, in, 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 like it's it's a minor point, but um, when uh, the kind of substitute girl you, you know like after killing the blondes is is talking on the phone and she's she's very much like i'm gonna need a 30 percent like pay pay increase basically right yeah, yeah 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 and i was like what's the deal with that because she like she needs to be on this heist you know right and i just wonder if that like w- thinking about it my takeaway was that that's part of an effort to make it look believable was like, yeah, I'm doing this thing that I wouldn't do, but it's because I'm getting paid more, you know? Yeah. I mean, that part doesn't quite make sense because, uh, it seems like I'm assuming her kid has been kidnapped as like blackmail. Right. Uh, so like why ask for a pay raise? That definitely doesn't make sense. But if she is impersonating somebody else, you're right. 
um, she would maybe have to do that. I don't know. That's my takeaway is is that it's like that they wouldn't necessarily ever necessarily believe that she would do this job that was way beneath her and is way too risky. Mm-hmm. Except if she was like, but I'm going to extract a lot, a lot more money for it, you know? Um, so that's, that's the only thing I could come up with. Otherwise it just seems like a weird move. <laughs> Maybe she's playing both ends, right? Yeah. 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 And, and we should say we, we didn't mention they're trying to steal like very fine art. Right, so the the score is thirty to fifty million dollars. Yeah, uh, which I mean, cool. I, I mean, this what five people split between five? That's a that's a good chunk of change. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know. Like we we can put a pin in in the idea of just like the if we really take on face value the that like heist movie people are are actually like there there are really people that are like that. You, you know, I don't know. <laughs> It's like, well, you know, you should watch uh, Money Heist on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Is it a documentary or? No, no, it's a it's a series from Spain. Um, So you can watch it subtitled or uh, dubbed. It's it's really good. I think it's two or three seasons on there. It's it's really good. And you'll get to know the intricacies of how people work uh, in heists. (laughs) Okay, I'll watch that if you watch Rick and Morty. I I will certainly watch Rick and Morty. It's been on my list for years. Oh man, get ready. <laughs> That's what I hear. That's what I hear. Uh, all right, uh, let's rate this up. I'm gonna give it. Uh, I'm gonna stick with the four. I, I I liked it. Good first issue. Yeah, definitely. I I think I'll go four too. I I thought it was very funny, but um, also you know I I think it's you know seems to be intricately plotted, and as I say. I have to imagine in typical high style that there's going to be several kind of like, let's say detours or, yes. or twists uh, before we get to the end. So yeah, uh, I, I foresee uh, many a backstabbing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Four out of yeah. five backstabbings. Also, I, I'm very curious what the like unlucky dude is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because he could foil people that are trying to sabotage the plan. Right. You know, it's like, we don't know who's, who's bad luck. There's like different people with competing agendas. Mm-hmm. And so he could screw over any of them or all of them. Right. Yep. We'll yeah. see. It's a good one. Uh, all right. Next up, uh, a book that's a little less funny, even though it involves comedy. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, isn't that like the 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 key thing with comedy though? Uh, you always hear stories about comedians that are like like the really great comedians are like super hyper depressed and just like hate life, right? And that's why they're funny. Yeah, dude. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about Knock 'Em Dead, the brand new book from friend of the show Elliot Rahal. We have art by Mattia Mon- Monaco, uh, colors by Matt Miller, letters by Taylor Esposito. And uh, and like I mentioned, it's a it's about a guy. Uh, I would assume like a lot of Elliot's books, semi autobiographical, um, because you know Elliot has been in in troops and comedy troops, mm-hmm. and so he he's dabbled. And so this is certainly a, a topic that he's very familiar with. But also in in typical Elliot fashion, it's uh, kind of a, a dark book. 
uh, can get uh, very dark at points in this in this issue. And uh, and it's also a very quick read, even though it's a, a regular size comic. Uh, there there's a lot of like three pa- uh, three panel setups, and with with very little to no words. There's a lot of emoji in here and and symbols, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was really well done. Um, you know, I think you can agree. You and I have been fans of Ellie for for a long time, and and we really love his work. And he's just like a fantastic person, anyway. You know what I mean? Like super down to earth and and very genuine, um, but this is like, for me, it felt like a, a book on a whole nother level for for Elliot, and and again, that may have to do with it maybe resonating on a very personal level for him, uh, because the main character obviously has some issues, right? His parents have died. Uh, I don't think we learn how they died yet, but uh, but they've died, and he he's goes going to college. He lives with his sister, and he's kind of a fuck-up in a way, and that makes his sister very angry at him until she realizes that, like, he's just being him, and he's dealing with a lot of psychological issues as a result of their parents dying. And I don't know what he's going to school for, but it's obviously not his dream. His dream is to be a comedian, and so much of the book takes us through him trying out material at different places that allow comedians to do stand-up uh some like legit comedy places like comedy store type places and some just like restaurants or bars that have like an open mic night and uh and he bombs basically in all of them and and there was something you know you know that uh, cliche where a picture is worth a thousand words like there was something about the the flow of the pages in this book that was just incredible to me um, because he conveyed so much in these three panel pages with zero words right because on on the left you'd have like the audience basically and then he's in the middle and then on the right it's like the reaction right so you see like mm-hmm. nuclear bombs exploding um or like <laughs> what was it like the it was like a bunch of dildos in a cup um or just like the eggplant emoji right like where you know like this guy's not doing well in his comedy even though you don't hear or see any of the jokes in in this book and and i thought that was like brilliantly done and that's why i say like this may be like a whole new level for elliot um and and i really enjoyed that and of course the art is i thought incredible like i don't know who mattia uh, monaco is but like this is somebody that I'm going to start following because like there was so much emotion and an atmosphere and depth to the pages uh, that I really, I feel like this is somebody to look for um, in the future. And um, so he, he's trying to be a comedian and he obviously fails at everything. And, and at one of the shows he meets the, the guy that follows up from, from his set is kind of, a better known comedian and everybody's laughing at the guy's jokes and through this circuit uh he happens to meet uh the comedian and the guy's like hey you know people don't laugh at your jokes because you're not doing you right like you're just copying other people's jokes um he's like you know take that raw emotion that you have and present that as your joke and your setup and people will laugh and and you kind of see that succeeding a little bit later on um anyway so he kind of takes him under his wing they go on a car ride 
and they get into a car wreck. The comedian dies, and then our main character briefly dies, and then comes back to life in the ER. And that's the basic plot. Did I miss anything? Nope. Okay. Um, but yeah, really successful. There's um, there's one little thing that I noticed at the end, and I only noticed it because I it's got a little blurb about what happens in the for the next issue, uh, in that last page, which I really like. I wish. Like every comic had that, right? We used to have that back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we're like, on the next issue, blah, blah, blah. And uh, there's a little blurb on there. And apparently after he dies in this car wreck, he is possessed by a ghost who will kind of um, help him get his career going. And my assumption is the ghost is the, the guy that died driving the car, right? Because he's he's a comedian. Um but I didn't see any clear indication of that being the case with the way this issue ended. Um, and it didn't detract from me at all because I thought it was a terrific first issue. Uh, but just something I noticed at the end that I wanted to bring up. So give me some thoughts, Travis. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, man. And I, I will start with, um, you know, underlining something you said right at the beginning, um, which, you know, I, I don't want to butcher this quote. But uh, I feel like like there is a saying that is out there that, you know, comedy is tragedy plus time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, when like Danny, the the popular comedian is talking to the, you know, the new comedian and, you know, there is, you know, like learning about the dead parents and such, you, you know, like. He's like, that's your comedy, you know, right. like he's like, he's like, and I feel like there, there is something that, that feels genuine about this, which I've seen in, in other places in, in certain media, which was really focused on the culture of stand-up comedians, you know, mm-hmm. um, and like just how central it is to them, like, to to get that laugh you know like like to understand what makes the the comedy tick you know um and i i feel like that really speaks to what the what the popular comedian is talking about is like you got to bleed for it you know yeah right, um right. like you know it, it, i i think there is an energy to uh stand-up comedy that is much like music you know that like on some level it really is kind of this like communicating your identity and and your emotions and you know like it's it's a craft and it's a lifestyle and like there there's parts when you read this story that 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 comes through the the passion for it you know and how central that is to actually doing it to to doing the grind and doing those lame open mics where nobody cares you, you know it, it's like you have to be a glutton for punishment to to even want to do it you know mm-hmm. um and i think like you know i i think that this issue at least like 
is is glancing off that stuff you know like like i i think it, it's kind of hitting that stuff um i i don't need me to minimize it at all i'm just kind of saying you know it's like it's the first issue and yeah yeah, yeah. no i get what you're saying. so much time to spend on it but i uh, you know, I I think that that it's presenting that stuff a, as far as helping you understand what what the world is. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think I some, think that's to its credit. There's something really interesting in what you said uh, about the whole comedy thing, and uh, you know, I, I don't listen to every episode because I'm just not like the biggest fan. Uh, but I do listen to Joe Rogan's podcast every once in a while. And, uh, you know, regardless of what you think of, of Joe Rogan, like he's been in, in the comedy industry for a long time. And so he's he's obviously very familiar with the business. And, uh, you know, I usually skip the episodes where he's got like his comedy buddies on there. Um, but uh, but I do catch highlights sometimes. And and there is like something about the comedy industry um, where like you have to have like a serious hunger to want to hone your craft, right? And and it's it seems like one of the the weirdest um and and I guess maybe least rewarding and most rewarding industries at the same time because you know that like 90% of your jokes are going to bomb, right? Especially when you're starting out and like getting a feel for like what people find funny. And and obviously, like if you're traveling, like different people around different parts of the country would find different things funny. Um, but like to be able to put yourself out in front of a crowd and and know that you could be humiliated every single night that you go up there, uh, but still want to use that as a learning experience and a way to advance, I think takes a lot of courage. Um, and and regardless if you know, most people don't become famous comedians, right? Like, if you look at the industry, like, how many comedians do you know by name, right? There may be, like, a dozen tops. Um, you know, maybe if you rack your brain a little bit, maybe you can come up with a few more names. But, like, you know, I would assume most people, it, it's a handful of names that you know, right? And there's hundreds or thousands of comedians on on the comedy circuit every single night of the year. And, and I think it, it really takes a special person to succeed in that particular industry. Right. And, and also like, it's about how much success do you want? Right. Because you can be a, a very popular, uh, like touring comedian and, and make a good living, but you know, you're not going to be like a Jim Carrey, right. Worth millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I do think that there is kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to characterize it as you, you need to be a glutton for punishment, but I, I think that like, yeah, the that's process part of it. Is, is such that like for comedy, even more so than like for music, which was what the analogy I was making before, I, like, I think it's even rougher in, in like what it takes to make people laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not really, uh, you know, it's not a conscious uh, thing that happens generally, you know, like, I mean, you can you can you can tell people they got a two drink minimum and hope that that makes them laugh. But, you know, like there's no guarantees. And, um, you know, bombing, <laughs> I think, really is a just brutal, visceral experience. Um 
and you're all alone, you know, like there's nobody there to, to help take, take any of that off you. It's just like, it's on your shoulders. And to that extent, I, I, you know, I actually, I think that, uh, the way they portray that in this issue, you know, I, 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 I quite enjoyed like how impressionistic it is with the mushroom clouds and the bag of dildos and the (laughs) pile of turds that says eat shit and you know like you know like the skeleton giving him the wrap it up light and um like i think that does get across like how devastating it is to have a bad set you know and the the idea that it's like that's gonna happen everybody right even when they've been doing it when you're starting when you're working on new material and that's just what you have to to that's that's part of it is you do it and you do it and you do it and you you just keep showing up to get like knocked in the mouth until it works and you know then you know people will think that it always worked that well Mm -hmm. yeah for sure right because you you watch a stand-up special on netflix or whatever you go see a comedy show and and a lot of times the material is great right and you laugh your ass off uh but you also forget that like there's guys that are doing these things every single night, right? And I know, like, Joe Rogan's talked about this, for example, where, like, they go to the comics, comedy store every night and do, like, a small five-minute set just to try new material. And that way, like, he can figure out what works and what doesn't. So when he does his Netflix special, uh, like, it's a riot, right? And people love going to see him. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that's the one thing about comedy, man. You know, everyone always feels like it's a ha-ha funny thing, but... Uh, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot more to it. You definitely got to be very resilient in in that industry. And I think some of that comes off at the end. I don't know if you read some of the uh, the back matter, but uh, but Elliot interviews a, a few comedians, and uh, just it was like three or four questions I think he asked each one, and and you really get a feel for that kind of thing. Yeah. No. I I I, I looked at uh, as much of it as I could. I I ran out of time, so I didn't. Sure, sure, I didn't sure. get to fully digest it. But yeah. I mean, I. I certainly recognize some of those comics. Um, yeah, but but you know you look at the the names and like none of them are famous. I, at least uh, I don't I think mean, they Cameron are. Esposito is well, sure, well known. But but you know like every comic on there has been doing comedy like basically every single day for the past like you know seven to ten years. Mm-hmm. And and they're not like household names, right? That's that's kind of what I'm implying, right? They're not like a Jim Carrey or a Joe Rogan or somebody like that. Jim Gaffigan, anybody? Yeah, I mean, there's that that level of, of you know stand up is definitely pretty rarefied. It, it takes a lot to to get to there, um, but you know, a, a lot of those stand up comedians that are you know that do a good job and 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 actually you know do a a fair living on stand up. Often they also have other gigs, you know, so like they yeah. write for talk shows or they punch up comedy movies or, or what have you, you know, it's like, you know, there's, there's a way that those people kind of like make it work. Um, sure. But I mean, it's, it's definitely, a, you know, a fascinating scene, you know, um, just, just in, in trying to hone your craft and to, you know, it's, it's such a personal kind of, form of expression you know Mm -hmm. um 
And I, th- I definitely think a lot of it does come from trauma and grief and trying to turn that stuff into, you know, like something that makes people laugh. Yeah. And sometimes it's about, you know, there's there's different types of comedy. Right. Um, so I, I've been watching a lot of George Carlin lately, uh, at least before the election, because, uh, you know, George Carlin was always very like he had a very good eye for that kind of thing where like he he doesn't tell jokes like i i watched a bunch of his stand-up things and like none of them are jokes he's just like talking real shit and people are laughing hysterically stand-up philosopher yeah stand-up philosopher exactly um because like that's what comedy is it's about like facing things that you fear or or make you feel uncomfortable and and that is what makes you laugh right so that's why i I like that you brought up the tragedy plus uh, time equals comedy uh, because that's exactly what it is. Uh, and then, you know, you you also look at a lot of famous comedians who, like, don't end up well, right? Like, a lot of them have drug addiction problems or alcoholism. Uh, there's a lot of, like, high incidence of suicide. Um, partially, I guess, because of the way the business works. But also, like, it, it takes a, a particular mental attitude, I would say, to want to be a comedian, right? Like, why may people laugh? Um, and that, that's kind of like a theme of, uh, I don't know if you saw the movie Joker. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, that's kind of like the theme of that, right? Where like you lead this tragic life and you, that's kind of why you want to make people laugh. Um, because you're trying to kind of like find that laughter within yourself. Well, you're, I mean, you were talking about Jim Carrey earlier, right? Like my, my wife tells a story that supposedly Jim Carrey as a kid went to sleep with tap shoes on uh, in case his like parents would fight during the night and, and he would get up and tap dance for them. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's sad, but yeah, (laughs) even as a child was like, I need to make people laugh to survive. It's, you know, and yeah, like certainly like that became an asset to him, but, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have a similar home life that that don't necessarily they're not necessarily Jim Carrey. You know, they can't. Sure, sure, yeah. And 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 Jim Carrey I think is a special case. I don't know if you're like follow his stuff recently. Um, I don't know. Like I, he must have had like an ayahuasca experience, and and I feel like maybe I'll watch a talk where he mentions an ayahuasca retreat. Uh, but he's he's gotten like very deeply spiritual and and like talks a lot about meditation and things like that and and i found that really interesting as as a coping mechanism for things like what you mentioned right like his parents always fighting and him always having the tap shoes on um whereas instead of like expressing his like inner conflict through comedy uh it seems like now he's find like a, a different way to find some some inner peace and, and not just through like exposing the the irrationality of people through comedy, but like through some spiritual means, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And of course, he gets made fun of a lot now. People think he's crazy um, because like the the experiences he's had are, are so profound to him that he always like people ask him about something, and whatever his answer is, always turns into like this awakening experience he had, right? And and I think that's kind of fascinating, right? Like he gets made fun of, but he doesn't care, right? Because like he's always been a clown. So like, how, how are you gonna make fun of a clown, right? Like they just laugh it off. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I I take the the things that he says. I mean, not that I follow it super close, but I know that he like talks about spiritual stuff or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. You, know, I, you know, like I I assume that that when he's doing that stuff, it comes from a genuine place of like I, I don't know him tr- trying to share what he what he has thought about and whatever. So you know, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I just I think that that's if if you were to to look at you know the funniest people mm-hmm. over the years, a lot of them like there's some element of it that is private grief um, and trauma and tragedy, and it's just you know it's what they have have developed to cope with that, and it, you know people respond to it. Um, and perhaps that's validating experience for them. I, I assume it's therapeutic to kind of like have other people experience that and probably yeah. take solace from it. You know, like I, I assume that, that that's all uh, a therapeutic exercise, um, you know. Um, l- let me ask you this. Uh, like, what you know, I kind of was struck reading this issue about, you, you know, you see kind of this repeated bit, you, you know, that he does like open mic after open mic. You see it a few times, but they there's not really any words like it's all emojis to your earlier point. Yeah. And I was like, I was trying to get get my head around that choice, you know, because like, I don't I don't know, especially as somebody that that does come from a comedy background, um, like you would think you would want to put jokes in here ah you know what i mean yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it was like why not have that actually be a part of it was like it was like let's actually see what this guy is saying i wonder but what i came up with was just maybe this idea that what he's actually saying right now like really isn't all that clever or funny and and that like that's why it's it's less important to to actually put it on the page than it is to get across the more like impressionistic nature of it. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I, I don't think what the actual joke is really makes any difference. Uh, I, I, what he's trying to convey is that the jokes are terrible and no one laughs at this guy, right? Mm-hmm. And and like, sure, he could write some bad jokes and put them in the script, but like, don't you feel that it was much more effective to like have you thinking about this guy's emotional state? Um, or like, well, what could he be saying, right? And so giving you this sense of intrigue makes you feel more connected to the character. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I will say is like, you know, for instance, if you did a, a rock biopic and you never show the the musician playing music, you don't necessarily <laughs> like get what it is that they're doing, like they're going on and on about the importance of this thing. You don't actually get to see see it like so i i'm just wondering if maybe as we go forward and he's like starting to grow that that you actually maybe do get a little bit more of those bits Uh, i mean that that could be a choice i would actually prefer if we have the same style of narrative with jokes that are actually hitting with people Mm -hmm. right um you know towards the end of the issue he he had a set that like a couple of people were like, huh, okay, like maybe kind of funny, right? Like there was no 
roaring laughter or anything, but like you could tell that it was kind of a positive reaction. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know you also got to remember like a lot of this is very psychological, right? So so the jokes don't matter because he's not thinking about the jokes; he's just telling his joke. And and the audience reaction isn't what's important. The the importance of what I feel Elliot was trying to convey is how this guy feels being part of the set, right? And the, and the reaction that he gets from people. And so that's why you have images of bombs exploding and dildos. Because, like, that's how he feels that they're reacting to him, right? The actual reaction is is totally irrelevant, right? We know that they're booing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I much prefer that. And and so I, I hope, again, I don't know, um, but I hope that when, when he does start writing really good comedy, and it seems like that's kind of the, the progression of the character, uh, based on what I understand about the plot, um, I, I hope that it's like whatever like flowers blooming in a field or something you know Hmm. okay well maybe maybe i just kind of arrived at at, you know a similar idea which is just the idea that like even if you had really funny like stand-up jokes like a transcription of a stand-up routine that killed like if you put it on a page and had people read it like they might not yeah it wouldn't be funny rack up you, you know, it's like when you remove it from the room and the crowd and the the actual like, you know, moment by moment delivery of it. Yeah, the performance that, that it's it's no longer the thing. So it would be the equivalent of like, you know, portraying a musician and like you got a little speech bubble and it's just like a musical staff with notes. Right. On it. Yeah. Well, and, 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 like, oh, wow. And, and you mentioned earlier, like, if you see a music biopic, you want to see the artist performing. Uh, you know, I think if if this were written as a movie, maybe. But, uh, but you know, there's there's some interesting nuances about the way to tell a story in a comic that you can't do in a format like TV or film. Uh, even though they're, they're all visual mediums, uh, you know, comics are like little slices of time. And so you can do something like just showing that image and have the same effect as going through the whole process in in a movie script. Yeah. So and and that's why I said like to me this feels like Elliot getting up like kicking it up a notch or two, uh, or maybe five. I don't know. Like I, I thought it was really really great the way it was done. Well, I'm certainly very interested where it's going next. You know, and mm-hmm. like. Yeah, I I read that like that teaser for the next issue too, so I know where it's going. But uh, you know, I I was very I was very curious where it was going prior to reading that. You're right. Yes. Yeah, it seems like uh, a little bit like Faust in a way. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and yeah, like whatever Danny's deal is, like he he seems like an interesting character, and my my guess is that he's. The you know the dude who's going to he's like his character is going to continue. Yeah right. Um, so I guess we'll see where he's coming from. For in sure. Future issues. Uh, the only last thing I had before we rate it up is uh, shout out to Ronnie Barron because uh, Danny's last name is Barron. Shame on you, Elliot, for not naming any character Travis or Martin. Ah uh, no, it's okay, man. So, <laughs> that's fine, Elliot. We love you. <laughs> you so can as, name one after me first. That's fine. Martin has plenty. Uh, that's true. I do have plenty. As a result, 
my score is only going to be a 4.99999 out of 5. That's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I got to go 5 out of 5 now then, right? <laughs> uh, you don't have to, Beam. That's cool. Uh, that leads us to our final book of the evening, Travis. And uh, we're going to be talking about issues one and two of Red Atlantis by Stephanie Phillips, Robert Carey, Rosh, and Choi Pateri on The Letters. And uh, I'm trying to remember, like, what the actual details of this is. Um, this is based on a story written by Jan and Victoria Newman. Um, and I guess, like, somewhat adapted into comic format by Stephanie. Uh, I can't remember the exact details of like how that whole thing came about, um, but I think like some of this is partially based on like a, a true story in a sense, uh, which would make sense with Stephanie writing it because Stephanie loves historical fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think there's some interesting stuff on here. I wish Ronnie could have joined us for this episode. Uh, I mean, I kind of wish that every episode, but. Uh, love you, Ronnie. You know, he and I could talk about some conspiracy theories Uh-oh. with uh, with Red Atlantis because uh, I I am familiar with uh, the the program that uh, that this book is somewhat based on and um, some of the things going on around it. So I'll I'll bring that up when when we go to the discussion. But uh, give me give me just like a quick gist of uh, of these first two issues. Okay, quick gist. Um, basically, I mean, you're looking at election day in the United States and in a few, uh, you know, swing states or, or specific polling places within those swing states, you know, you, you see this kind of horrific random violence, um, you know, that, that kind of seems to be, you know, coming from elsewhere, you know, like people's phones go off and then their eyes go blank and they start attacking each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you then start to see kind of a, a FBI procedural story where they're looking at stuff and, well, you know, there's, turns out there was a, a power outage that happened at the same time as this attack and, and they've, Trace that to an apartment building, and there's a you know a former Russian national who lives there, who's now a college student, um, and they go to question that person, and you know like former whatever Russian spy shows up to to rescue her, um, and tells her that well you know you you're the daughter of uh you know some Russian scientists who were all about you know, in the first place, kind of opening up the the possibilities of human minds, you know, to weaponize for the Soviet government. But then they decided that was bad and uh, they were murdered by the Russians for it. And unfortunately now, on all accounts, it's a secret Russian, uh, you know, scientific program, Red Atlantis, um, that is trying to start World War Three. Uh, and and that's where we're at, basically. Yes, yes. Uh, in some ways, this story plays out like um, I don't know, kind, like kind of a superhero type tale, right? Because you you have people with uh, like mind control abilities and telekinesis and and telepathy, maybe. 
but also it's it's you know about the the return of the Cold War, I guess you could say, right? Because Red Atlantis was a program started uh, during the Cold War, and there's a little bit of like the Americans thrown in here, right? Where like it seems that Russians may have implanted like secret agents in the U.S. Uh, to play for the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's why I brought up the Americans, um, and they can be like activated through these uh, electronic signals. Uh, so there's a little bit of like I don't know if you ever read um, what was the name of that book, Mimetic, uh, by mm. oh man. I can't remember the name of the writer now. Uh, he he's writing Batman. Uh, he was writing Batman. Uh, let me see, Mimetic. Book. Writing Batman. Or a uh, uh, detective, not Batman. Uh, Tinian, James Tinian the Fourth. Huh. Uh, yeah, Mimetic, fantastic book, highly recommended. Uh, it came out from Boom several years ago. Uh, so there's like this idea of like uh, you know memes, uh, kind of like uh, an idea virus. Uh, so I think some of that plays in here. There's a little bit of like, you know, Black Widow espionage, uh, that kind of thing, which I really love. And, you know, it's all set in the present day. You know, we just had an election here in the U.S. Uh, it seemed to go, uh, for the most part, peacefully, aside from people that refused to accept election results. Uh, but there weren't really, uh, you know, violent riots or anything like that as a result of the election. Uh, but it's something that like could happen, and and were we still living in kind of the the Cold War mentality of uh, of the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, then this book would feel a lot more real than it does now, right? Uh, especially when you you have the guy that bas- like he, he pulls the Matrix, right? He stops the bullet in midair. Uh, it, it it makes it feel more like a fiction story and less like something that could actually happen in real life, right? If it was just like about activating these uh, like Manchurian candidate type things, uh, it would it would maybe feel a little more realistic. But uh, but even through that, like um, I, I think I may have talked about some of this. I can't remember the the, the book that Mark Sable did. I know he's got a new one now, but the one he did previously, uh, where they were fighting like the the mythological gods and stuff and uh god killers god killers that's it i mentioned a little bit during that and then uh in, in some other books i can't recall now ronnie and i have talked about it in the past um but you know obviously the the russians had programs like these and and we had programs like this cia programs uh like uh you know operation stargate and things like that where they do experiments on like remote viewing um you i don't know if you've ever seen the movie Oh God! They stare at goats. George Clooney. Uh, no, I haven't seen that one. Okay, uh, so that's a, a a fictionalized kind of comedic account of an actual CIA program uh, where they <laughs> were basically like training people in mind control, telepathy, telekinesis, remote viewing, and things like that to see if they could find a way to weaponize it. And and so of course the Russians had similar programs. And that's kind of the 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 program that Red Atlantis, which is kind of like a, a covert military operation in in this fictionalized world, is has accomplished. And they're kind of playing the long game, right? They're they're a Soviet era institution. The Soviet Union's not around anymore. 
but they've kind of played their cards and waited their time um, because you know you the disinformation campaigns aren't something that you do overnight, right? You you have to play the long game, and it takes years and and decades sometimes to do this. Um, and I'm not going to put it in the show notes, but there is a, a really interesting interview uh, that you can watch. The guy's name is uh, Yuri Bezmenov. He was a KGB agent that defected to the U.S. in the 80s. And uh, and he talks about some of these disinformation programs in particular, not the mind control and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of fake news, this kind of in the zeitgeist for the past uh, four plus years. And uh, and he talks about how they were developing these programs in the Soviet Union to combat like American ideology. And and of course, like the U.S. does the same. Right. There's a there's a really famous quote from a, a CIA director. Uh, I think he was CIA director in the 70s, William Casey. Um, he, he said, uh, we'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. And and, you know, you come to the present day. This was said, you know, in the early 80s and you come to the present day. And we've basically been kind of living in this world for the past four years. You know, we'll see what happens in the future. Um, so there's there is a lot of like overlap, and you can easily get into conspiracy based on some of the ideas that arise in this book. Uh, but these are like legit government programs. Uh, so you know, we we talk about the Cold War ending decades ago. Uh, you know, a lot of the programs still exist, and they've gone like into new phases i guess you could say uh so for me like a lot of the stuff felt somewhat real ish right like yeah it's a fictionalized thing for a comic um like the guy stopping the bullet but this is a lot of this is based on real stuff and and maybe that's where these people that you know are credited with writing the story come in uh where uh maybe they had some personal witness account first person account of, of these spy programs and and are now telling the story in this new format. So I, I wanted to set that up kind of as a basis before we discuss. Well, I, I feel like I'm at a loss because I, I didn't realize that there was actually information out there about Red Atlantis and I was a thing. So no, 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 the, the, the institution Red Atlantis that this book is named for, I don't believe is a real thing. At least okay. not not one that is called Red Atlantis. Okay. 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 Um but you ha- you know you have this idea of like um not like secret government but like certain programs that are like covert black ops programs uh that aren't public knowledge and that even a lot of politicians don't know because politicians come and go, right? Um I just watched the I don't know if you watch Colbert ever, but uh, mm-hmm. he he just had uh, Obama on his show, and he asked Obama about aliens, and he's like, "Well, I try to find out, but like, you know, they don't tell me anything." Uh, and that's one of the things, right? Like, if there were to be some kind of alien program uh, studying those things, like the president wouldn't know because presidents come and go every four years. Uh, the people that would know would be like deeply entrenched military personnel. Uh, or like career spies in the CIA and NSA and and those kind of uh, institutions, and and of course the same would be true in Russia. Yeah, dude, I've watched Independence Day. I know how this stuff goes. Okay? 
Yes, you write your your virus on your Windows 95 laptop and upload it to the alien mother frame. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, Bill Pullman, President Bill Pullman, didn't know about Area 51. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah there you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, okay, I, I feel like I need to um, piggyback on, on the, you know, some stuff that you've said with also something that, that I found interesting, and I, I just want to put it out there, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, it's, it's, you know, kind of the extent to which this story is fictionalized. And, like, obviously, there's people with mind powers, so... <laughs> right. Probably a lot is fictional. Sure. But, uh, like, what I, what I specifically found interesting, right, um, was... You know, th- this election is on November 3rd, right? Yes. That's that's the date that this year's election was. Unless Correct. I'm, I'm incorrect. So, so it's like same election day. And the, you know, the broad strokes of it really seem to be, you know, pointing to, I don't know, like at least suspected Russian attacks or interference on an american election which right. has happened you know yes um well it depends who you ask but yes continue i mean if you ask for instance the u.s senate <laughs> <laughs> they will say yes that happened for sure um so um like it's it's just in it inhabits in a weird place for me that like that stuff obviously feels real, you know, like that feels like our world, but there's no Trump uh, and there's no pandemic, you know, right. there's nobody wearing masks. And like, I, I certainly, you know, I understand the utility and sometimes probably the necessity of basically being like, oh no, like this is a fictional United States with a fictional president it's not like we're not talking about the real world, like real real life politicians are not appearing. I understand the, the value of that, but it's weird to have those kind of whatever floating around the mix that feels real. And then at the same time, have it be this kind of fictionalized thing. I don't I don't fully know how to grapple with it. Well, you know I mean, I mean, you know, don't get too attached to it. It's a comic book. It's a comic. But you know what I mean, though? like yeah a lot of it feels very real and i think that's that's the point right and i think that's why we generally love stephanie's stories is because she grasped onto that real element while managing to tell this alt fiction story um and and i think that works extremely well in this book because it's modern day right a lot of the stuff that we've seen from her has to do with characters in the past right Mm -hmm. historical figures and this is happening literally right now well, yeah, I mean, yeah, but except that, you know, like, there's no Trump and there's no, like, Biden. And, you know, it's like it's happening right now, but it's not here, well, sure, right, but, here right now. But but then the problem becomes if you if you put in a historical figure, uh, you know, I, I love reading old comics. And I always find it funny when I'm reading a comic and, like, Ronald Reagan shows up, right? Or or George Bush oh, or Lord. Bill Clinton, right? <laughs> uh, I always find it funny because then I'm like, okay, like this is not a story that I'm reading now. It's a story that I would be reading in like 1984, right? So um, so I I prefer when dealing with 
um, sociopolitical issues for there not to be um, current historical figures, right? Like if, if there's some flashback scene to, you know, like Reagan, like that's cool because that was, you know, 40 years ago. Um, but if you see like Trump or Biden show up or any of these other guys or, you know, you're already dealing with a lot of uh, social angst uh, on this election topic, like why add to that with talking about the pandemic? Right. Um, and, and it seems like now we're, we're going to we're starting to get and we're going to get a lot more movies and TV shows dealing with pandemics. Right. I just watched a, a fantastic one. Uh, a Russian show on Netflix called To the Lake that deals with a pandemic, um, very similar to COVID. But there's also like this twist angle uh, that you kind of see throughout, but it really shows up in the last scene of, of the season uh, that has you showing like, OK, it's not just about a pandemic. There's a lot more going on here than just that. Right. Like there's a reason why the pandemic showed up. Um but like, you know, for, for the comic, like there are writers and artists that like to place their own personal beliefs and ideas into the books. And we see this kind of stuff all the time, right? Like Eric Larson's famous for it. Eric Larson doesn't give a crap. Um, but a lot of people kind of shy away from that, right? Because you, you want to sell your book and you can reach a, a higher audience, a bigger audience, if you don't make that specific commentary, I think. So I get what you're saying, but I actually prefer it this way. Yeah, no, I like I I'm not I'm not trying to to criticize, honestly. Like I I literally am trying to say I don't know how I feel about it, you know? Like I I don't know that it that it's a bad thing to to fictionalize it in that way. I just mm-hmm. think it's it, it's it's a weird melange of like taking things that feel very real and current and also not, you know, and maybe that's sure. like that's a, a good way, a good approach is to kind of take take where we are and and remove it just enough that it it's not going to be instantly dated and and like it's not gonna turn away somebody whatever who who like I, who hates Joe Biden or whatever you know you, sure. you know like so I yeah and, and to go back to the conversation we had with like Knock 'Em Dead for example a lot of comedians do like wife jokes right and they may not necessarily be actual experiences they had with their wives but they're funny experiences because they're common experiences that everybody has with their wife. And so when they tell these jokes, uh, their wives don't usually get mad because they're fictitious stories, right? Even though they're saying it's my actual wife. Uh, but, like, people laugh because they relate to the story. And it's the same thing here. Like, it's not a comedic thing, but you relate to the story because it's a possibility for what's happening, but not so real that you're like, whoa, let me kind of back off from this book a little bit. My wife. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I felt that I needed to put it in there somewhere. I I walked into that. Yeah, um, I walked into it. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me put this out there, which is that like uh, there's there's certain elements of of the narrative that I think are are interesting. Like I don't know that necessarily everything is on face value. Like specifically 
whatever it is that you know that has a transformer blowing in the apartment building of this girl that you know has this relationship to Red mm-hmm. Atlantis. Right. Like I don't know whether to make of that like she somehow caused all of this or that that they're trying to frame her for it. No, you know no, what I, I mean? no, yeah, no, I don't think uh I didn't get that at all. Uh, because you see, uh, in the first issue, you see the that one guy, uh, all dressed in black with the the black beard, black hair, short black hair. Uh, he, I, I think he's got a device in his hand. Uh, so there's there's some kind of technology they have that, that can disrupt electronic devices. Um, and it could be like, um, man, what's what's the book that we read recently from AfterShock with the the kids on the island that are like my obsolete. Yeah, you are obsolete. Um, where it's like this use of technology for like mind control, right? And this is where you can you can get into this kind of thing in comics, where like if you hear some of these conspiracy theories in real life, they seem crazy, right? Um, but like this is a a fictionalized way of explaining how some of these programs develop, right? Uh, in terms of like controlling the news and controlling the media, and like controlling the types of stories that get put out um, and, and the mood that is enveloping those stories. Right. Uh, You know, regardless of how advanced and intellectual humans think they are uh, ultimately we, we still kind of derive a lot of our decisions based on like deeply entrenched um, evolutionary psychology and you know the, the whole thing with like Pavlov's dogs, right? You, if you want the dog to learn a new trick, you show them the trick, and then if they do it properly, you give them a treat. So then the dog's like, okay, I did it right, I get the treat. If I do it wrong, I get electrocuted, right? And and people still work that way very much, right? Even though we have conscious thought and we were able to imagine repercussions for actions, uh, we still very much derive a lot of instantaneous decisions uh purely on instinct and and that can be very easily controlled through various media outlets right um and and in this book that plays out through this like use of technology to mind control people yeah no i i just like it they they got very quickly to um to this person's apartment right it's like yeah miriam within a day miriam is identified uh you know as like a person of interest if not a suspect right well and i don't think she was involved in what's happening uh so it's just a question of yeah there's a simple explanation for that so the two fbi agents uh find a pattern to like these power surges and and the one FBI guy before he gets mind controlled and and asked to jump out the window, he's like, oh yeah, I'll I'll send you a list of like he's like I can do better than that. He's like I can send you a list of people that live in the area, and so they're basically just like like the the the, the section that you missed is them going door to door and basically talking to everybody in the area where this is happening, uh, and we just immediately jump to them talking to Miriam. But they're basically just going door to door and asking people what the hell's going on. Yeah, but the reason why they're looking at Miriam is because a transformer blew in her building, and and she is a was born in Russia. No, they're they're that's what I'm saying. 
they you don't see this in the book, but they are interviewing every single person in the office building. And so before they interview them, they got because they're the FBI, they they got full profiles of all, all these people. So that way, when they interview them, they already know if like something might be fishy. It turns out that the thing that's fishy with her is that she was born in Russia and adopted in the U.S. at a very early age. You see what I mean? So like the the part that you're missing is that they're not just going after Miriam. They they interviewed everybody in this building, but we're not seeing all that stuff. And I think that could have been clarified by just like a panel or two of them talking to other people. Uh, but from from my reading of it, there was nothing that specifically singled her out uh, as a possible suspect. Okay, I, I mean, I will grant that, but they were they were looking at this building. Yes, and you know, either that's because she was involved somehow, or because somebody was trying to make it seem that she was involved. No, no, no. That's the part we disagree on. They're just looking at everybody in the building. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm, try, but, I'm trying to find the panel where where that guy shows up. He's like, yeah, here's the list of the people. But why did the transformer that caused the the citywide blackout, like, why was that in her building? It's just a coincidence. Uh, well, I don't think the transformer was in the building. Uh, and and I I understand what you're alluding to because at the end of issue two, you do see that she also can stop bullets, uh, but she doesn't know it. Right. Yeah. Um. So, so I think maybe that's where the confusion is. Uh. There, there was nothing shown that would indicate that she something happened to her that made her subconsciously blow the transformer up. Yeah. Like I don't. I don't know that the that like I'm not sold on that aspect of it. But my my other like. There was a transformer that blew up in her building. That's my recollection of of issue one, which is why they're talking to her in the first place, because somehow they link the simultaneous blackout in Houston to this larger situation. And they were like, it has something to do with this building. So let's talk to everybody. And Mm -hmm. like this, like we're looking at this person because she's Russian. So I just found the page. And when they're investigating the whole thing, they explicitly mention that they've already interviewed other possible suspects. And like there was this one guy in the building that was a Russian citizen and and the FBI boss is like "Eh," or one of the FBI agents. He's like, oh, that seems a little weird. Uh, Maybe we should get some more info from these guys in Richmond. Uh, And the guy's like, yeah, I can do better for you. Here's the names and backgrounds and info for all current residents. So there's so, another Russian national in her building? Correct. Oh, well, that's just a weird coincidence then. Well, maybe, but it could be the guy that we see in the first issue when yeah. all the riots break out at the at the uh, polling places. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just like I mean, it, it's all prelude to me thinking that maybe there's something more that's going on here. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that like, I, I don't know, like it's. It's beyond a bold move to, for like Russia to to try and be like, hey, you know what we want to do is start World War Three. So like we're gonna we're gonna instigate some like violence at polling places in America on Election Day, and then hope they find out that it's us so they can attack us. Is like no, it, it seems more likely that I, I don't know. Like what I'm wondering is. If it's 
for instance, somebody in America that is trying to start a war with Russia. Yes. And it is trying to be like, well, they attacked our elections. We have to fight them. You know, like. Well, and so going back to uh, when I was talking about the Americans, I think that's exactly what's happening. Right. So either through the dissolution of the Soviet Union or maybe even before they had already implanted uh, like Manchurian candidates in the U.S., Right. And and many of them don't know that they're Russian or don't know that they're like programmed for this spy mission. Uh, they get activated through some process. And, and part of the process in this book seems to be this like electronic search uh, that somehow like turns them on. Uh, but even through that, like there would still have to be just like agents that are just living normal lives in anticipation for that signal to come from somebody, right? Like there's gotta be somebody to turn these agents on. Uh, and so they just, whatever, they work at the fish market, right? Uh, and live on minimum wage until like they get the order from somebody uh, higher up, like, all right, it's time to get the mission rolling and they turn on these other agents. Uh, and, and you're right, and that is the mission. Because you can't it, – it's it's much more complicated to actually set up like a war or do an invasion or any of these things. It's much easier to pull like a Trojan horse maneuver and work from the inside and, and do these disinformation campaigns over years and decades so that the, the groundwork is already laid out for you, right? And, and all you got to do is hit the button and, and, and you're, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, Red Atlantis wants a war between the Russians and the Americans because they still have that Soviet mentality. They don't give a crap about the, the Republic of Russia. They want the return of the Soviet Union. Mm. And, and the way to do that is to have these two superpowers fight each other so they can destroy each other. And out of that rises the new Atlantis, the Red Atlantis. Ah, Atlantis rises. Okay. Yeah, get it. I mean, honestly, I, I did. I was very curious what what was going on with Atlantis the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So, so the allegory behind that is, um, I don't know if you, have you ever heard of Edward Casey or Edgar Casey? Mm-mm. All right. So he was a, a medium in the I don't know teens or twenties maybe, and uh, and he wasn't like a new agey guy. Like he was like super christian like uh his dad was a preacher and whatever uh anyways he he would go into these trances and uh like see future events and and during one of these trances or maybe several i can't remember um he had this vision that in the i think it was in the 60s uh atlantis would rise up in the atlantic from from being underwater for 10 to 1000 years it would rise and would like change the course of civilization um obviously like there's no atlantis that we know of in the, in the atlantic right now right that uh, i know of yeah that we know of could be a cover-up um but like uh like people that follow casey say that like technically that did come true uh, because there was some like archaeological find in in the 60s uh up the coast of bermuda i think um 
but like it's not like a literal city rising up from the ocean right it's just kind of like an archaeological discovery um and so that's the allegory behind atlantis rising because for for a lot of these um these groups that like followed casey or or people like um Mada Bavlatsky, uh, I can't remember the Anthroposophy, I think it was, or no, Theosophy was the group that uh, Blavatsky did, uh, which is the group that inspired the, the, the occult side of the Nazi party. Uh, they believed that Atlantis would rise up again and uh, would like correct all human wrongs, right? And, and that's the allegory behind Red Atlantis, uh, where the, the Soviet uh the soviet union would rise up from the ashes of whatever came before to like create a new world government to to right all the wrongs of capitalism etc uh that's that's what the allegory to red atlantis is dude am i blowing your mind today (laughs) you laid down some knowledge man i don't even know what to say Today I learned. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love it, man. You know, that's why it's important to read all kinds of random crap. I am a wealth of random crap. Yeah. All the books I've read recently have been about banjos. So uh, unless somebody starts writing some comics about banjos, I I feel like I like I have very little to offer in terms of the like, the more you know. yep yep Uh, so so that's the story behind red atlantis uh but again as far as i'm aware this is not a a a historical name of an organization yeah i mean it's i mean it's very interesting um the idea of something yeah that is submerged and then then re-emerges yes yeah i just kind of like i don't know it seems like your take is that that it is russia that's doing this and and i don't know like i'm i'm wondering if maybe it it's not russia that's doing it you know because mm-hmm. it's like seems very obvious from from appearances that that's what what maybe they they want to appear is happening you know right but it you know if it were russia doing it like it would seem to be very obvious that it's them Yes. So well, and, I, and and that's why it's kind of brilliant, right? Because I mean, technically, it is Russia, right? It's it's an organization from Soviet Union, uh, but they have very different ideas from what Russia is today. Yeah, and I mean, like Putin is is basically Soviet, right? Like, yeah, I mean, Putin was a like KGB he's, agent. He's KGB, like yeah. he's as far as he's concerned, he he still thinks that the Soviet Union's alive and well. I mean, except that, like, they wouldn't have stood for the kind of grifting that he's done for the last 20 years. Sure. And and the only difference is that he he set up the Russian Republic in a way I don't want to get into social politics, but he, he set it up in a way uh, where Russia can play the worldwide game. Right. Uh, the, the, the communist economy would not work in today's world. Right. That's why even though. Uh, the Communist Party is the the leading party in China. China is very capitalistic. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's basically the same same thing. Yeah. That's... Right. Absolutely. So if if you want to play the game, you gotta be a player. You can't just be in your own little corner. 
uh, and Red Atlantis doesn't want that. They want the whole system to crumble so that they can replace it with what they already believed in, uh, which which is interesting. And again, like you can go into a million conspiracy theories uh, in terms of this stuff. I think some of them are actually rather interesting, um, maybe even more plausible than some of the other crazy stuff that you hear about. Um, but you know, there's there's always like there's always a a nugget of truth in in every conspiracy theory, right? Um, that's why I said like this is more fictionalized comic-y because you have this guy literally stopping bullets, and as far as I understand the world, you can't stop a bullet uh, by thinking about it. Uh, but some of the other stuff that arises as a result of of the plot of this book, I think, is somewhat feasible, uh, at least in terms of these. Uh, government conspiracy theories, right? I mean, like, we we depose governments all the time, right? And, and instill somebody that's more favorable to our economy. Uh, you see this a lot in, um, in like, South American countries like Venezuela and Ecuador and those kind of places. Yeah, no, it's just a, it's a taller order to do that with the United States, you know? <laughs> well, well, depends There's on a... how you feel the country actually works. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's just a difference in the size of the economy of, you know, the United States versus the economy of whatever, you know, Bolivia. Oh, sure. I mean, Bolivia is not rich in oil, right? So, like, who gives a shit? Uh, but a country like Venezuela, maybe you want to have them on your side. Yeah. Uh, let, let me add this as well. Uh, is I, I don't know if... if th- this just kind of showed up on my radar. was um in issue two, mm-hmm. uh, there's a uh, an exchange where, um, like, the dude, the bald dude, uh, was was recognized by like the dude who walks out the window. It seems to be an FBI guy with a beard. Yeah, who walks out the the window in the beginning of the issue. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a moment I feel where he's he's recognized. Oh, interesting. Maybe. I, I thought I thought that that was part of it that that you get to when he shows up again later in the issue. Well, he and, walks into the room and it's like, oh, it's you. Yeah, don't worry about that. Why don't we walk through the window right now? Right, right, right. Well, and you got to think too. Like some of these people are cannon fodder, right? Like not every Venturian candidate is going to have a purpose. Some of their purpose might be to get them to this place. And after that, they're expendable. Right. And they don't care. Right. They're, they're martyrs for mother Russia. So whatever. Yeah. I just, I mean, there, I feel like there's some significance to that, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. And, so. and we might find out as the story progresses, right. Cause we're still kind of getting to know what the hell's going on. Right. Like Miriam didn't really find anything out until, you know, halfway through issue two. And, and she barely showed up in issue one. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just I'm just throwing that out there that I think that's gonna come back later. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that'd be that'd be cool to investigate. Yeah. Uh, you wanna rate it up, my friend? Yeah, man. Uh, let's let's go four out of five on this one. Man, I didn't convince you for five after all those speeches I gave. Shame. I'm sorry. I I forgive you. Uh, for me, Stephanie's batting uh 100, and she's still uh five out of five. Would she be batting a thousand? Eh, whatever. I like one hundred. Hundred, it's not that great. Yeah, I guess you're right. She's batting a thousand. Look, I'm not into the sports ball, okay? I read books. Yes, and I, I, I feel you, man. I'm just trying to, just trying to be correct. 
Fair enough. Like, at least, like, let's understand what we're saying. What we're saying is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If people got what I meant, okay? Unless you're Ronnie and you're waist deep in McRib sauce, in which that all went by over your head. But everybody oh else got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. It is what it is. Ronnie just went out and got uh, two more mech rips. Okay, breaking news. Yeah, no, I'm, thanks, buddy. I, yeah, I, I know what I'm eating for dinner tonight. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, let's let's uh, let's wrap it up, man. This is uh, an oversized episode. We can't be gone for three months again. That was two hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, good good discussion. I, I always love chatting after Shock Books with you because we always – uh, go maybe way deeper than people care uh, for us to go into. <laughs> yeah, but Elliot appreciates it. So, oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. And I'm sure we'll we'll get uh, a message from Elliot when he listens. <laughs> yes. Uh, very good. So uh, that's it. Thank you for listening. We'll uh, we'll we'll not be gone for three months again, hopefully. Um, no. But uh, if you want to get in touch with us, Twitter at the great magnet at geekbind at aftershock pod thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode